And it's interesting because Edward de Vere, the person that I believe was the real Shakespeare, in 1575 took a trip to Italy where he lived there for a year and a half. If you were to take a map and put these colored pins on the places that he stopped, the 13 plays of Shakespeare, the places there, Venice, Padua, just the places that he went to were the places that were visited by Edward de Vere. I'm today accompanied by Robert Bock. He's really interested into Shakespeare and why he might actually not be the true author of many of the things that people think that he wrote in the past. Who are you and why are you questioning this so basic statement that current culture assumes as a given? Well, my name is Robert Boog. I live in uh, Los Angeles, California, and I work as a real estate broker. When I went to college, I went to college at uh, UCLA. I received a bachelor's degree in English and actually won a Shakespeare sonnet writing contest when I was in college, which was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But after I graduated, I didn't really think about Shakespeare very much for, you know, the last 30 years or so. Then the pandemic hit and I was watching a lot of TV. One thing that I noticed was a commercial for Latuda. It kept being repeated about every 15 minutes. Here in Los Angeles, it's expensive to run commercials, so I was wondering, how much does this uh, drug cost, and what is it for? And I found out that it cost $1,500 for a 30-day supply of Latuda. It is for the symptoms of bipolar disorder. Then later that same day, I was listening on Twitter. There was a video by Sir Patrick Stewart, He was reading a, a sonnet a day, and the sonnet he chose gave all the symptoms of bipolar disorder to me. That's really um, kind of how I started to question Shakespeare from that, I think. I actually wrote a book called Shakey's Madness. Does a mental disorder reveal the real William Shakespeare? I'm not being able to understand how you did the connection between this bipolar disorder medicine and Shakespeare. Can you please explain some more about that? Sure. One of the things that I noticed when I was reading Shakespeare, one of the questions I had was all the fainting. Most people, I guess, don't notice it, but I wondered, like, why is there so much fainting in Shakespeare, not only in the plays, but also in his poems? So when I counted, I counted um, like nine instances of fainting. And then, of course, during the pandemic, I googled fainting in Shakespeare, and this British physician in 2006 actually went through every single line of Shakespeare's poems and plays. He came up with 18 instances of fainting and 13 instances of near fainting in Shakespeare's works. So I thought to myself that that much fainting must indicate that here's a person who must have fainted as a child or witnessed a lot of fainting and has a lot to do with it. So I'm like a dog with a, a bone on it. I start knowing it. But let me start with one question that had bothered me too was this one. Okay, here's what I was told when I was a kid, that there were two men, Hemmings and Condell, who gathered the 
plays of William Shakespeare and brought it to a publisher. And then they had it, this first folio with 36 of Shakespeare's plays. You know, it was published. Have you heard that story? No, 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 I have not. Okay, so I had heard that story. And to me, that story did not make any sense. I mean, I've been married for over 20 years. If I were to die, my wife would know where my writings are. So why isn't there a statue for Shakespeare's wife? Why didn't she know about his writings? He owned the second biggest house in his town. Wouldn't she wonder, like, where does this guy get his money? I mean, wouldn't she, you know, know that? I mean, to me, that didn't make any sense. So there are little things like this that bothered me. The other thing that bothered me, and this was something that I came across, I don't know, I didn't realize that there was such a big deal about this question, that so many people are so adamant that Shakespeare was the real author. There is, and I'll be honest, there is no direct evidence that shows any other author wrote the plays and poems other than William Shakespeare. So I'll be honest and say that. So with that said, my question is this. Have you ever heard of King Henry VIII was a king who broke away with the Catholic Church? He wanted a male heir, and his wife gave birth to a daughter. So he wanted to get another wife to have hopes for a male heir. So he ended up annulling a couple of marriages. He beheaded a couple of his wives. He really wanted a male heir. After King Henry VIII died, his son, you know, who was the heir, he died at age 15. The next person was Queen Mary Tudor. They call her Bloody Mary. Then after Bloody Mary came Queen Elizabeth I. So Queen Elizabeth I was a daughter of King Henry VIII. Now, Queen Elizabeth I has been called the Virgin Queen because she never married. She never had a son or daughter. So when people hear the word Virgin Queen, they kind of think like this chaste, pure as the, the driven snow kind of person. When the truth of it is, she was as ferocious and feared as her father. There was an edict, a law based in around 1350 that said that the king or queen or whoever was the ruler or monarch in England had the right to behead anyone or charge them with high treason. If you ridiculed the ruler, if you called the ruler a tyrant, or number three, if you imagined the death of a king or queen. So now let's go back to Shakespeare. Here's a guy who wrote these plays. What does Macbeth do? Does he kill a, a king? Yes. We have Hamlet, a prince who kills, I mean, he's poisoned, but he kills Claudius. You know, his father is a king or stepfather. And then, of course, we have Cleopatra, who is a queen, and what does she do? She kills herself. So the question I ask you is, why would anyone want to be, or I mean, would you put your real name to these plays back in the, that day? Or might you hire someone to act as your front man? 
and yeah, you pay sense. them and makes they sense. take the brunt for you. Because if you're rich, you all you would need really is someone who's poor and they're willing to do anything for money, really. I guess that's my premise or hypothesis, that the real author was a rich nobleman and connected to the queen so he could see what was happening in the Queen Elizabeth's court. And he could write about it, but he was very careful in his writings, things like that. Or how do we know that it was not William Shakespeare? Now, William Shakespeare lived almost 100 miles away from London. And he lived at a time when it took three or four days to journey by horse from his hometown to get to the city of London, which would be perfect for writing a letter, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. From Los Angeles to San Diego is about 89 miles. That would be about the distance from his hometown to London. But people have searched for over 400 years, and no one has ever found one letter written by William Shakespeare to anyone. And yet experts claim that Shakespeare collaborated on some of his play. They'll say he wrote this play with John Fletcher or this play with George Peel. They got, they just like make stuff up. There is no evidence at all. And that's the thing. When I started getting into it, I just, again, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. All I do is because I work in real estate and in real estate, people often lie. So that's where I'm coming from. Okay. So you don't actually question the existence of someone doing all the work behind the authorship of the things that were made. You're just saying there might be someone who was actually using a pseudonym or trying to not be acclaimed as being the true author because that would lead the kings of the moment making your life horrible. But you are assuming that there was a single person doing all the work, don't you? Correct. And the person's name was Edward de Vere. He was the 17th Earl of Oxford. He was a wealthy guy. And what my book talks about is the first reason to me that makes sense is that the real person, whoever was the author, had to be an expert in Latin. He had to have time to rewrite. Now, Edward de Vere was 14 years older than William Shakespeare. So he was older. Plus, Edward de Vere was tutored at age four, he was brought to the house of this man named Sir Thomas Smith. Sir Thomas Smith and his wife had no children. So he was brought at age four. And here was this guy who was a Cambridge scholar, which means he was very fluent in Latin. And Sir Thomas Smith believed it was easier for boys to learn Greek first than Latin. So by the age of eight, Edward de Vere was a student at Cambridge University. So it's kind of like Mozart, except for language. And that's kind of how people have depicted Shakespeare as being a genius or a boy genius. And here we have this, except his name is not William Shakespeare. So anyway, what is interesting about Edward de Vere is when you look at the plays of William Shakespeare, you see that if you look at the sources within three years, from 1590 through 1594, there are seven plays written by Shakespeare. But the thing is that most people forget that he also wrote two long poems, which are Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece. Now, The Rape of Lucrece 
has a source material. So whoever was the author borrowed sources that were in different languages, mostly in Latin. But for this, the rape of Lucrece, for example, in 1594, the sources he used, one was a book called The Fasti by Ovid, which was six books that was not translated into English until 1644. The other source was The History of Rome by Livy, and this was not translated into English until the year 1600. Now we're talking about this poem that was written in 1593 because it was published in 1594. And back then, it took them about a year for the printing press to arrange all and typeset and get everything perfect so that they could print out this poem. So there were 35 books in the history of Rome. So let's say that he used 18 of those books for the rape of Lucrece. Let's say that there was one play that, and I'm just using one play, and that was the Comedy of Errors. The Comedy of Errors was performed in December of 1594. So that book is based on the monogamy, which was not translated again until a little later. And it used a lot of uh, law terms. So somebody would need to know the law. So you have let's say two books just for the play, The Comedy of Errors, plus there were the 18 books for The Rape of Lucrece. Then Venus and Adonis was based on 15 books of uh, Ovid's poem called Metamorphosis. So altogether, you have all of these books. So if you, I mean, you're talking almost 40 books right there that are all written in Latin that are not in English. Now, my wife is from Guatemala. She speaks fluent Spanish. And I took three years of Spanish in high school, so I can get around with Spanish. However, <laughs> I know that, uh, and one time actually, I, we took this online Spanish test and I actually beat her. So all my friends laugh at me and they say, she threw that test just to make you feel good. But what I'm saying, and here's an example. Okay, so one time my wife and I, I sell real estate. One time I got a phone call. This man was speaking in Spanish and he said that they were interested in uh, selling their home. So I told my wife, and then since I took that call, I said to her, let me do the introduction when we meet them. And so my wife said, sure, that's fine. Okay, so we meet these people. And in real estate, there's a thing called, it's, uh, it's where you try to find something in a room like golf clubs. You see golf clubs and you say, do you play golf? And they say, yes. And you say, oh, I love golf or something. That makes you feel like you're on the same wavelength, right? Okay. So the people had these two small poodles and they'd recently been groomed. So they smelled good. So I, I wanted to say, sus perros huelen rico. And, um, but I have a problem rolling my R's. So it it came out, sus pedos huelen ricos. <laughs> and so I looked up and the man, he had this sparkle in his eye, like he was trying not to laugh. And his wife was like looking the other way. I looked at my wife and she was like, uh, like shaking her head. So I knew I said something wrong, right? So uh, on the way home, my wife said, oh, by the way, when you uh, introduced uh, us to them, do you remember what you said? And I said, yeah, of course. I, I told them that their dogs smell good. And she said, no, you, you said their farts smelled delicious. The thing is, when you learn a foreign language, 
you make mistakes. It's just how it is. But in Shakespeare, we're to believe that here's a guy who basically took a couple of years of learning Latin in grammar school, and he can read 40 books and write these two long plays. I just do not believe it. And then the other thing about writing is rewriting. They say that Ernest Hemingway once said that the first draft of anything is usually garbage. So where is the time you have three years? And we just talked about two long poems and one play. Now remember, there are seven plays. And some of the sources, like for one of the plays, is a book, Diana Enamorada, that was written completely in Spanish. So how is this guy from 100 miles away from London being able to learn Spanish like this? To me, it just, it doesn't add up. Okay, but why would then one single person be able to do everything? Oh, that has to do with what my book is about, which is the bipolar disorder. So uh, bipolar disorder used to be called manic depression, meaning that some days you are on a high, you're excitable, and there are other times when you are depressed or very low. One of the symptoms of someone who is in a depressed state is thoughts of suicide. So we notice, like when Hamlet says to be or not to be, he's talking about suicide, right? And that's one of the things. So when you notice all of the suicides, like... And Anthony and Cleopatra, there were, what, five or six suicides? I mean, that you see this in Romeo and Juliet. You see, like, all of these things. These were not taught in grammar schools, but in what they call a classic education. In other words, to the Greeks and Romans, suicide was okay. It was uh, condoned if you had, you know, these certain elements so that... If you had a group of people, would they want a happy ending or they, would they want a suicide? I just can't think that a group of people would agree on suicides. In other words, there are faintings, suicides, and just symptoms of bipolar disorder that we see that would not be found in a group of people, but in one person, yes. So perhaps... Yes, perhaps there was some collaboration on some of the plays, but he was like the director of a movie or the editor that he put his stamp on it. So perhaps he paid for a couple of people to help him write, and then he, he did the final touches, let's say. And it's interesting because Edward de Vere, the person that I believe was the real Shakespeare, in 1575 took a trip to Italy where he lived there for a year and a half. If you were to take a map and put these colored pins on the places that he stopped, the 13 plays of Shakespeare, the places there, Venice, Padua, just the places that he went to were the places that were visited by Edward de Vere. And the other interesting thing too about Edward de Vere is he stopped to visit the great painter Titian. And Titian was this person who had this, well, he would have like, not a garage, but like a, a working area where he would have these younger painters 
who would um, start painting for him, and then he would finish the paintings. And so that's what I think Edward de Vere may have learned from Titian, that, yeah, you could have other collaborators, and then you be the master artist at the end, if that makes any sense. And one of the things that was interesting, too, is that Titian was a person who painted Adonis. And Adonis is from the play Venus and Adonis. And in Titian's painting, he has two you know, famous paintings of Adonis. And one is where Adonis wears a hat. And in Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, Adonis wears a hat. Now, what's interesting is that this painting was only in Titian's bedroom. And Edward de Vere, back in those days, like a famous person would stop at another famous person's house, spend the night or a week or whatever, and then they would move on and move on their travels. So we know that Edward de Vere visited Titian, and Titian died like, I don't know, a few months after Edward de Vere's visit. And then two years later, his son sold that painting to this Russian czar. So it wasn't in England. It was in Russia for the next like 80 years or something. So there's no way that Shakespeare would have ever seen that painting. And Shakespeare never left the country of England. So the Queen of England was afraid of the plague coming to England. So you had to have special permission to leave the country. And we know Edward de Vere had that permission and was able to leave. And how can you be so sure that he did never leave the country? Like I said, they were afraid of the plague. So you had to have special permission. You would have to get a passport in order to leave the country. Without the passport, you could not leave. And there's no time that he could have left, really. So there's proof of him being on England from like the point in which if there is enough showing of him being in England, you could guess that he's never left it. If there's frequent enough interactions of him with locals, there's no way he could have left England in any moment, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like this. William Shakespeare and his father were involved in a lawsuit in 1587. And then in 1593, the poem Venus and Adonis was uh, printed. So again, it had to be written prior to it being printed and typeset. So let's say the typesetting took place in 1592. So it would have had to have been written before that. But if you look at the number of plays that were written prior to 1592, there were four plays that were written that started in 1589. So how would he be able to travel to Italy, write these plays it would not make sense. It doesn't add up. And what's interesting, too, is that there was a lawsuit in the year 1600. And William Shakespeare sued this man named John Clapman for seven pounds. And he won the case. He actually won 10 pounds. The judge awarded him 10 pounds. Now, what was the lawsuit about? William Shakespeare claimed he loaned John Clapman seven pounds in 1592 and he never got paid back so modern day Shakespeare scholars say well this was a different William Shakespeare 
our William Shakespeare was from Stratford-upon-Avon, and this man was living in London. But don't Shakespeare's scholars also tell us that William Shakespeare left Stratford-upon-Avon to seek his fortune in London after 1587? So this places him in London in 1592, and he's got enough money that he is lending money to someone, which is something that William Shakespeare did. He was known for lending out money. So again, I think that we should believe the judge who awarded him the 10 pounds back in the year 1600 as saying, this is the man who got that money. But where did William Shakespeare get that money? So my argument is that he got paid for his name so that Venus and Adonis could be published. So he wasn't a businessman. Well, I don't think he knew how to write. I mean, I don't think William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon, I think he was illiterate, actually. Now, the evidence that I found shows that his father did not live in the town of Stratford-upon-Avon. He lived in a farm five miles away from that town. A lot of people today who believe that John Shakespeare, William's father, was a Catholic. In the year, in, in the 1800s, they found like these secret passages in the Shakespeare house that were like Catholic writings. And she, uh, John Shakespeare was born in a time when most people were Catholic. Let's put it that way. And if he lived during the reign of the Bloody Mary, remember her? She was Catholic. She was so staunchly Catholic, she would kill all Protestants. So it would make sense for him to be a Catholic. But the problem is, is that Catholics back then did not believe that all children should go to school. Like the way they believed was the eldest child would inherit the property and the second child should be a priest. So the second son would be the one who would be educated. William's brother was named Gilbert Shakespeare. And you can do a, a like a Google images search. Have you ever seen the signatures of William Shakespeare? Yeah, they are super similar, aren't they? No, they look like no? William Shakespeare's signature versus his brother's. There are only six signatures of William Shakespeare. And you can do, like I say, go to Google Images. Don't take my word for it. And just okay. look up William Shakespeare's signatures. He doesn't even spell his name correctly. You would think that a great writer would be able to, you know, spell his last name. But he misspells it. He doesn't spell it Shakespeare with three E's. It's just got one E. It's, so it's Shakespeare, like that. His brother Gilbert has a very neat signature. It's like he went to school. Williams looks like he had a stroke or something. I mean, it's all shaky and it's all over the place. And that's another reason, you know, again, this is circumstantial, but if you wrote one million words in a time when there are no computers and only quill pens, how could anybody read anything this guy is writing? I mean, you would think after one million words that we would see a, a neater signature from that writer, and we don't. So, again, I, I just don't believe that. I, I think he was illiterate. Okay, so it adds up all the evidence that you've gathered until now adds up to the same thing, that Shakespeare might only have been a pen name. Yeah, he was a real person. He was paid to be a front. 
I'm not trying to disparage him in a way. I mean, it's kind of like he did something important. Whether he was brave or stupid or just needed the money, at least he was the face for this guy, the real author, uh, Edward de Vere's plays, poems, and sonnets. I mean, I respect him for doing that. I think we've given too much credit to him and not enough credit to Edward de Vere, who was the real author of the plays, poems, and sonnets that have been attributed to William Shakespeare. Don't you find a lot of trouble finding evidence from those times? It's not like now that you can find evidence from multiple sources and they are relatively reliable, like GPS locations, photographs. There's a million new things that you can get now that there's not from those times. And then people back then weren't as capable of writing the things that they were seeing. So maybe there's not a record as a rigorous record as it could have been now. One, are you finding that trouble, finding evidence with that? And two, how have you been able to overcome this patent problem? Well, the you have to use common sense. Just like I said with me speaking Spanish, or it would be like um, Jimi Hendrix being able to play guitar at age four without ever having a lesson. I mean, it's kind of like they try to make this guy to be able to do something that is impossible, no matter if you're a genius or not. It doesn't matter. Even a genius has to study. He has to be tutored. You don't just pick up a language in two days. It takes time. And that's the problem that a lot of people have. Now, the, the other thing is, is it's really that the situation is that there, you have to start with the premise that there is no direct evidence. There is only circumstantial evidence. So circumstantial evidence is like a fingerprint left at the scene of a crime. It is an inference, meaning that all we can think of is that, okay, based... When I talk about bipolar disorder, for example, what I'm saying is that first he had epilepsy, and this is Edward de Vere. He suffered from epilepsy as a child and then bipolar disorder as an adult. So how do we know epilepsy? Because in some of the plays, they refer to mummy. Now, what is mummy? Mummy was like a tonic or a, a cure for epilepsy. So in Othello, he says something like, my, you know, my mother's handkerchief is missing. So Desdemona can't go to the chest of drawers and pull out another handkerchief because we know that Othello's mother dipped her handkerchief in mummy. So it's like kind of like a plot device in a way. It fills a plot hole that Desdemona just can't come up with any handkerchief. She needs one with mummy. Now, what was mummy? It was the bones and cloth from mummies in Egypt that were broken up and ground down into a powder And so it's actual human remains and it was shipped from Egypt. So it was very expensive. And now think of it like this. When, when somebody has epilepsy, what do they do? They faint, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. when they faint, they put, nowadays we would put smelling salts under their nose, right? And mummy smelled really bad. It had this odor like tar or sulfur or something like that. So when they would put it under their nose, they would wake them up and revive them. So that's when you see mummy in, in these plays, you, you realize that somebody had to have epilepsy 
and or knew about it in order to put it in. And the only person, again, when you, there is a, a book about Edward Devere where they talk about all these bad things. They make him out to be such a bad person. And he was always sick as a child. They called him hypochondriacal because he was always sick. And they're claiming that that was a problem with him. He was always sick. Another thing was when he was eight years old, I told you he went to Cambridge. He broke all the windows in his room. Now, why is that important? Well, back then when someone was epileptic, first they were hit with a stick. The thought was, it was kind of like medieval, but they wanted to beat the devil out. They thought, you know, because they were shaking and because they had fainted, that the devil must be possessing them. So they would beat them with a stick and place them in a dark room. So now you have an eight-year-old boy who keeps breaking the windows in his college dorm. And they're saying he's a bad kid because he kept breaking the windows. Me, I'm thinking... Most likely, he did not want to be in a dark room. He wanted, you know, turn on the lights, but they didn't have electricity back then. They just had candles. So if they had no candles, he would probably break the windows. Okay. Do you know what corpus callosum is? It's a C-shaped fiber in the brain that connects the two hemispheres. And when you cut it, all the seizures from people disappear. But this is a super recent thing, so those treatments weren't available then. So they had to use this kind of tricks that you mentioned of the mommy and all those things. But do you think there's some kind of placebo effect going on there? I'm not sure if there is a placebo effect, but the fact that the plays talk about someone being hit with a whip or hit with a stick and being left in a dark room, like in three of the plays it's mentioned, it means that somebody must have experienced it or witnessed it. I mean, you can't just write stuff up without some kind of knowledge, right? The evidence that I take is really from what is written in Shakespeare's works. And I'm thinking there's no way if William Shakespeare was not the author, then why somebody else must have been? Who is the most likely person? And to me, it is Edward de Vere. Now, some people will say, no, well, what about Francis Bacon? Sir Francis Bacon is a good candidate. And Sir Francis Bacon was the cousin of Edward de Vere. Most people don't know that. So I think that after Edward de Vere died, his daughters had the plays published. And in the first folio, you can look this up too, it is dedicated to the two fine brethren, William and Philip Herbert. These were both earls, and they were both multimillionaires. Now, Philip Herbert was married to Susan DeVere, the daughter of Edward DeVere. And the brother, William, was engaged to Bridget DeVere, her sister, but their engagement did not go through. We've all heard the expression, happy wife, happy life. So perhaps, you know, Susan told her husband, I want to have my dad's plays published. Now, remember when the two actors had found these plays and I said it didn't make sense? What also didn't make sense is that only 18 of the plays had been performed at that time. And the first folio consists of 36 plays. So how did the other 18 plays make it into the first folio? You know, what's also puzzling is that the old quartos that the two actors would have collected, they said that 
they had been performed, and we have these old quartos. Well, those would have been stored at the Globe Theater. The Globe Theater burned to the ground in 1613. Shakespeare died in 1616, and the first folio was published in 1623. What makes more sense to me was that Edward de Vere died in 1604, and then his wife died in 1609. After his wife died in 1609, his daughter's most likely received the plays because Edward de Vere had two secretaries who probably made copies of all his plays. And they just handed them to the daughters and then the daughters probably called their uncle Frank or uncle Francis Bacon. Hey, can you read these things or make them more legible so the printer can print them up? And that's what I think happened. All your evidence ends up pointing out to something, to Edward being the true author of all the things made by Shakespeare, but it's not certain. You don't have 100% certainty. There's other subjects that could have certainly been the, the true authors, aren't they? You, anyone can argue anything. You know, it's just the likelihood. Okay, let's put it like this. Queen Elizabeth died in 1603. In 1601, the play Richard II was performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men of which William Shakespeare was an actor. And he was, experts tell us he was the playwright who wrote the plays for the Lord Chamberlain's men. So after Queen Elizabeth saw this play, and in this play, the king resigns his throne. And so a lot of people at that time were thinking that Queen Elizabeth does not have a daughter or a son. Maybe she should resign the throne and just nominate someone here. So because... To the people that were living at that time, that was probably kind of scary. Like, who is going to be the next king or queen? What's going to happen? Are we going to be a Protestant nation or Catholic or what? You know, because that was all part of it, too. So this play was presented before Queen Elizabeth. What do you think she did after she saw it? She might not have been pleased by it. You think she was pleased? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Let's put it this way. The guy who paid for the performance was a man by Sir Jelly Mayrick. He paid the Lord Chamberlain's players. Queen Elizabeth had him hung, drawn, and quartered. And what they do, that they hang a person until they're just, they're almost about to die, but then they're disemboweled, their intestines are ripped out, and then these four horses just rip their body uh, apart. That was what happened to him. But isn't that unnecessary? The person was already dead by the time you took all the things from the interior out. It's to show the public. This is what happens no. to you when you make fun of the queen, when you imagine the queen to be dead or giving the, the throne to someone else. Now, Sir Jelly Mayrick was not the writer of the play. Remember? Who wrote Richard II? William Shakespeare. Now, what happened to William Shakespeare? Shakespeare experts tell us that the queen knew William Shakespeare because he performed many of his plays at her court. That's what we're told. So if she did this to the guy who paid, what did she do to the person who wrote the play? Something worse, I guess, but there's nothing worse than that. She didn't do anything. She didn't even question him. Why? Because she knew he was not the author. But did she know? that people were going to assume that he was the author, even if that's not true? See, back then, and this is what it's something that I state in my book, it wasn't until for many years these plays didn't always have the author's name on them. So the actors were the rock stars. The person who wrote it, they never really thought about it. 
I mean, t- you know, if you hear a song, you you hear that, uh, you know, Drake sings it, you're thinking, wow, what a great song. And then later you hear, oh, that uh, Beyonce actually wrote that. I mean, I didn't know that or, so, you know, something like that, where and that's what happened back then is until 1623, when the first folio came out with all these mentions of William Shakespeare writing all these plays, then people knew, okay, so he wrote all these plays. But back then they didn't know. But the queen would have known because she had all these spies. The thing with Edward de Vere was Edward de Vere's father died when he was 12, and he was sent to London to live basically at the house of Queen Elizabeth. It was actually Queen Elizabeth's secretary, whose name was William Cecil. So he lived at this place called Cecil House with William Cecil and his wife, Mildred. But they were really close to Queen Elizabeth. And Queen Elizabeth came to Edward de Vere's wedding. She came to, like, they were... In fact, when he was 10, Queen Elizabeth came to his house and stayed three days there. So he and her were like, that was like her son. And that's why I'm saying nothing happened to him because she knew he was the writer. It would be like, I'm not going to kill my son over this, but the guy who paid for it, I'm getting him. Remember, uh, Shakespeare supposedly wrote these two long poems and dedicated them to Henry Rossley. I don't know if you know about that, but she had... Henry Rosalie put into prison for life in the Tower of London. And this other guy, his name was Robert Devereux. He was, she was related to him. He was like her, he was her cousin. She had him beheaded as well. So she did not like Richard II. In fact, she would scream at people years later saying, don't you know I'm Richard II, like, like that to people. And um, so she did not take that play um, very well. Okay, so all your evidence, even though it's not 100% certain, it's like the best evidence we have until now. I think so. I think it points to one person, and it points to Edward de Vere. It does not point to this man who lived many miles away, who does not have the extensive Latin education he would need to be able to read through and translate all these books and in order to write the plays and poems. And he didn't have the time because the, it's kind of like Edward de Vere just dumped like all these plays on him and said, put your name on these, you know, and just, I want to get my money's worth, uh, whatever I paid you, you know, here are seven of these plays or, you know, like that. So that's what happened. Now we're trying to figure it out. So experts today will use something called stylometry, and handwriting analysis. And they say stylometry proves that Edward de Vere did not write the plays. Stylometry is where the computer uses an algorithm and it compares three-letter words and two-letter words. Now, how many plays did Edward de Vere write? Well, he was known for writing plays because he was considered the best at Queen Elizabeth's court for comedy. There was a writer who said that, but none of his plays ever survived. So experts believe that he probably just put them under the name William Shakespeare. What he did write were 16 poems, but 
there's a question as to whether these are really poems or songs because they're found in a book of <laughs> where they're songs too. So now we're trying to compare like one million words of William Shakespeare with all the the two-letter words and three-letter uh, words to songs. It's not really a fair comparison. And also, is the writing that you did as a child, let's say that you wrote something when you're 13 and now you're 33, wouldn't your writing change? And that's that's the other problem with stylometry is that it doesn't really take into effect that people do change their writing styles as they get older. So they are able to say that someone didn't write it, but they are not able to say who wrote it. I don't think that stylometry can tell the difference between someone at age 14 versus someone at age 44. That's what I think is the problem. Okay, okay. The handwriting thing, again, we only have six shaky signatures from William Shakespeare, and we don't have any other document that we know with 100% certainty that William Shakespeare wrote it. So that's the other problem. So even though the stylometry is not precise and, and is not taking into account the difference in age, people still use it as a proof of age. It's actually is what we believe. Some people do. Some people, that they want to cling to something. Look, Shakespeare's authorship has not been questioned for like over 300 years or something. People take it as a given. He wrote it. I was taught this when I was a kid. I, I want to believe in this story that there could be a boy genius that is, uh, you know, eight years old that was able to write these magnificent plays or something like that. But it's kind of like Santa Claus. At a certain point, you have to say the reality is that a man in a sled with these eight reindeer cannot fly. I mean, I don't care what you, you're telling me, but I, I'm just not believing it. So that's what I think. It's more like that. The real evidence, when you look at it, uh, just does not add up. And yet, very smart people still want to believe in this fairy tale. So you wanted to take the red pill, even if it's not nice? Well, it's, it's not a matter of it being nice. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the teachers want to tell us that he should be able to write these things because anyone can be like Shakespeare. We don't want to discourage like lower class people or people who have been discriminated against. But the thing is, is that if you have a mental disorder, you are also being stigmatized because people can often tell you there's something off with that person. And I don't know what it is, but they're a little weird or something like that. And they do want to, as far as bipolar disorder goes, Yes, it's part of someone's life, but it does not define them as a person. What's interesting about my book is that it's the only book I've written that I've gotten like emails from people that have said, thank you for writing this. My cousin has bipolar disorder. My brother has bipolar disorder, this or that. So they feel like inspired by it, that someone with bipolar disorder. And what's interesting is, and I write this in the book, is that the American writer Kurt Vonnegut also had bipolar disorder. And he said what cured him more than taking pills or taking medication was writing, everyday writing. He's saying this in 2006, and we have this person in the 1570s and 1580s who wrote over one million words. Maybe that's why he wrote so much. 
is he had to. It's kind of like a shark has to keep moving to survive. He had to keep riding in order to feel balanced or feel normal or whatever. That's what I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, makes sense. Definitely. But it's like the amount of knowledge required to be capable of doing a correct judgment is so high that I think, this is my theory, knowing that there's so much knowledge required in order to come into the field and do a judgment, people just abstain from it and just accept things as a given. And then there's someone like you who have found the time and who was mentally capable of doing all the research. And then you are capable of having new conclusions. But if it wasn't for people like you, I think that the barrier of entry is so high that people will just accept it as a given. Don't you think? Yeah, it's more than that. Because... What's weird about this is that these very smart, talented people would be calling me like a flat earth believer. And I'm trying to be logical and I have no pony in the game. I'm not, I make much more money selling house than I do writing a book than, you know what I mean? So I'm not doing it for money. I'm just thinking that maybe this will be of interest to people who are enduring. I hate to say the word suffering because People who are born with bipolar disorder and epilepsy, they that's all they know. You know, they endure it in their lives and they deal with it. And I think it because what I found through doing some research is that divorce at a young age and death, death of a parent at a young age seems to increase the likelihood of someone having bipolar disorder. And that's something that's coming out right now that I think that is important and that people should be aware of. And also, especially here in America, we have these school shootings where some kid takes a gun and just starts uh, shooting. That's not normal. You know? And maybe if students were being taught about bipolar disorder, and what's interesting is that some of the, the symptoms do not arise or manifest until someone's in their late teens, early 20s, and this is the time when students are learning about Shakespeare. So in my book, I say, why not talk about the authorship issue? You may not agree with me, but at least talk about it with students, get their take on it, and make a discussion about mental health. And maybe just knowing these symptoms might improve someone's life or be able to steer someone. And here's the scary thing, because some people have told me This is pure speculation that, like, how can you diagnose someone who died over 400 years ago with bipolar disorder? That is impossible. And to them, I say, it is the same diagnosis that we do in 2022. In other words, you cannot take a swab and stick it in someone's nostril and test for bipolar antigens because it's a mood disorder. It's... How did you feel yesterday or the day before? How are you feeling? So it's a psychological and a mental disorder. It's not a disease or a virus or something like that. Of course, we don't hit people with a stick and put them in a dark room today, but we're able to treat people with Latuda and lithium or whatever. But there is um, a website, it's called Quest for the Test, where these parents of their, their son passed away because of suicide and like 67% of people diagnosed with bipolar disorder will attempt suicide in their lives. So it's, it's a very high rate. 
and they are trying to uh, develop a test for bipolar disorder. That's what I think. If I can help in any way with that kind of thing, just bringing awareness to other people about this. And again, like I said, you can agree to disagree. I'm fine with that. All I'm doing is showing you what I've discovered. I'm not claiming to be the world's greatest researcher or Shakespeare scholar or anything like that, because there are people that are these scholars that have actually gotten angry with me and saying, you're just uh, trying to stir the pot somehow. And I, I, all I did was kind of like put two and two together and I came up with this and hey, I, I could be wrong, but I did send it out to some psychiatrists and he said that you're the only person in history who's ever suggested this. So it's kind of wild that, you know, so I, I, I call it, I compare it to like an optical illusion. There's one with an old woman and young woman in it. And if you look at it one way, you will see that we've only been looking at the old woman, but there is the young woman in front of us this whole time. I'm just the guy pointing her out to you. So I say don't kill the messenger. I think that you don't need to be the person with the high status in academics to be considered someone with something relevant to say. You're just trying to apply the scientific method to the quest of finding out the truth. The fact that you don't have a PhD after your name or that you are not from Harvard or Stanford or Ivy League school doesn't make your thesis wrong. It's just that you are a person with a willingness to find truth and you're doing what is in your hand to find it. And people should be able to see your thesis and judge it with respect. Just saying, oh, this guy doesn't have a PhD. I'm not going to take him seriously. That's nonsense. You could 100% be right and everyone would be... Like this, this has happened a few times in history. You see it with the girl. I don't know what's the name of this girl. She, do you know the Monty Python experiment that they did? It was a TV show in the US, and there was this mathematician, a girl who said, "Oh, actually, you have to change the the door." And there was like a thousand mathematicians calling this girl. You know nothing. This it is super bad that you are calling that. This is the thing people should be doing when you know nothing. So maybe you should go back to high school. And then it was shown that she was right. So it's not prestige, the thing leading truth. It's truthful and honest seek for truth, what leads to it. And the fact that you are doing this research by your willingness, this is practically for free. You are not doing it with a secret intent. You're being honest with your seeking. It's a love of the art, isn't it? Exactly. And I think that, again, if it helps bring awareness, especially in schools or something like that, then it's worth it. Even, you know, who knows? What if it saves one child's life or something in the future? Hey, I, I'll take that. I really support your cause. I'm not knowledgeable enough to have a coherent point of view in relation to Shakespeare, but making people more aware of mental problems, especially nowadays with social media, I think that's something really serious. I agree. I've done an episode with a friend and we talked about the problem that there is a mismatch of interest between social media platforms and users. And basically platforms want you to stay there the, mo the most amount of time possible and you want to manage your life the best possible way. So those are not aligned. It leads to people making things that maximizes your time in the platform. So that leads to mental health downwards. I agree. And also, have you ever noticed like someone will say, I am leaving this platform forever or something like that. It's almost like they want to have this 
farewell speech. And then two days later, you see that they're back there. The reason that they gave the farewell speech was to get gather, you know, 35 likes or something like that, where it's just kind of like, I think that you're right. I mean, at a certain point, social media is something that should be managed, or at least you should be more cognizant of how much time you're spending. And really, is this something that we should be monitoring ourselves just a little bit more? I did the opposite to what you mentioned. You mentioned people being hypocrite, saying that they are going to leave the platform, giving a speech of, hey, I'm going to leave, so I, I want your attention now. And then they leave two days afterwards, they come back. I did the opposite. I said nothing. I used to use Instagram. And then what I did is transition towards nothingness, the time invested in the platform or my interactions with people. So people just forgot about me. I stopped using it progressively downwards and then suddenly like two months after my transition started, it ended and I was like, okay, this is the perfect moment to stop to delete my account. I deleted it, no one noticed it and then suddenly I meet a guy in the street, a friend of mine, and he says, oh, I, I noticed that you don't have Instagram and I was like, oh, you are the first person noticing it. My plan was genius. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you for having me as a guest. Buena suerte para usted, you know, and have a, have a good one. Okay, thanks. I think that people like you are the ones who should be given a voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs>